everyone, Richard Tubb here. Welcome to Tub Talk, the podcast for IT consultants. Now, for the past few months, a lot more than that, in fact, cybersecurity has been top of mind for every IT managed service provider. And my guest today is someone who is at the forefront of building the technology that can help keep MSPs and their clients safe. Ben Jenkins is the Senior Solutions Engineer at ThreatLocker. Now, ThreatLocker is an application whitelisting, ring fencing, and data storage control platform that protects businesses from malicious and misuse software. Ben himself specializes in working with small businesses, helping them implement technical solutions that will grow and scale their businesses. He's a ransomware expert, and he spends most of his free time educating others about the importance of cybersecurity, something very needed, and we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about today. Ben, welcome to Talk. Perfect. Thank you. Hello there. How are you doing today? Where are you joining us from? Uh, so I am joining from Reading today. Uh, so obviously just just out to the west of London. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a cold and dreary day. Um, luckily enough, I've managed to avoid going out so far. So um, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely quite good. <laughs> well, before we dive in, I'm really intrigued by your background. Tell us what led you to a career in cybersecurity, and what did you do before you joined ThreatLocker? Oh uh, yeah, so it's it's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, I um, I, I initially got into IT by doing an apprenticeship uh, at a secondary school in, in based in Woking. Uh, that was kind of my first job into into IT, and um, I absolutely loved it. My uh, the, the guys I worked with there really set me up. And um, from there, I moved over, worked in MSP for a short while, and then I actually moved to a large vendor that everyone knows called Datto. Um, I was there for about six years doing numerous different roles, whether it be tech support or um, solutions engineering. And um, yeah, then that moved me over into a threat lock. I really liked the idea of moving into uh, cybersecurity. Um, it's a it's a big interest of mine, uh, making sure that people are well, secure. Mm. Uh, so um, it, it kind of seemed like, like a, a really good uh, move for me back then. So yeah. Yeah, I love that background. So worked at an MSP, worked at one of the, the biggest uh, uh, vendors that's done on the planet, and now working at ThreatLocker. You've, you've covered all bases at a fairly young age. Yes, I, I have. Uh, I, I frequently joke that I've kind of completed it now. Uh, I don't really know what, what, what comes up next. I've gone from end user to, to MSP to vendor. Um, uh, so yeah, we're, we're, I'm taking it just, just each, each uh, day at a time right now. Well, you're in the right place at the moment. Cybersecurity, as I alluded to, you know, it is front and center for most managed service providers uh, at the moment. How would you describe ThreatLocker to anyone who's not used the platform before? What is it exactly? Yeah, sure. So ThreatLocker is essentially a um, application whitelisting or ThreatLocker is essentially a zero trust endpoint security solution. Um, what we really try to do is make sure that your endpoints, whether they be your workstations or servers, are truly protected against cyber threats. And we do that through four main components. We do that through app whitelisting, as you mentioned earlier, allowing apps or, well, by default, denying anything that isn't on that whitelist. Uh, ring fencing, basically saying, hey, application, you want to be able to run, that's totally fine, but you're not allowed to access the internet. You're not allowed to access other apps if you want. Um, access or, or um, uh, elevation control. So uh, take away local admin rights from users and allow them to be able to run certain applications as um, an administrator should they, should they want to. And then finally, we have our storage control, which is USB blocking and also locking down network shares. Um, so the certain apps can't access those network shares. So we're in kind of a unique space in the market. Um, I'm not aware of any vendors who kind of do everything that we do. We have certain competitors, 
But um, being realistic, we are in that kind of niche where we offer everything as that one, as much as I really hate the term single pane of glass, that one bundle, um, we, we, we offer it all as a wraparound. So we are, we are very niche in, in, in that way. Yeah, makes sense. And lots to unpack there. I want to talk about some of the technologies that you mentioned. Before we do that, ThreatLocker as a company, obviously you're based in the UK. Tell us about ThreatLocker and the company. Where did they come from? How was it founded? Uh, how many staff do you have around the world? Yeah, sure. So um, it was founded, I think, four or five years ago um, by our CEO and founder, uh, Danny Jenkins. Um, Danny was essentially um, providing IT support for a, uh, a school and um, as part of this, they were after an application whitelisting solution. And he realized there wasn't really a solution that did everything that he wanted. So Danny being the kind of guy he is, he just went ahead and created it. Uh, it's just kind of what he does. <laughs> um, I've been on frequently on calls where he's needed something and he'll just go ahead and just create it very quickly. So he went ahead and he went ahead and created this and realized very quickly, this was something that businesses actually wanted. Um, we started off kind of dealing with enterprise predominantly. And then realized, as a lot of MSP-centric vendors do, that, wait a second, this could work really, really well for the MSP market. This is something that they could really, really utilize. Um, and since then, uh, we've been, uh, I would say, more leaning towards the MSP market. I'd say probably about 80 to 90% of our market now is about MSP-based. In terms of where we're based, our head office is actually based out of Florida. Uh, so it's lovely and sunny. We get to go over there a couple of times a year and soak up some of the sun. Um, Danny is based out of there as well. We have about 100 people globally, maybe a little bit over now, actually, now I say that. Um, and obviously, we have an EMEA entity, which is where I'm based out of, um, where we're in EMEA, we're actually split up quite a bit. Uh, so we have a few people in Ireland and then and then spread across um, the UK as well. And the reason we've actually done that, rather than getting an office over here, is because we can hire the best and the brightest now. Uh, we're not locked down to one individual place where we have to say, hey, can you move for work? It's a, if we think they're the best, it doesn't matter if they're down in Bognor Regis or over in Ireland or right up in Scotland, we can hire wherever we need to. Um, and that's really helped us grow as a, as a company. Such a smart move uh, to do that. I think two things that jump out to me, you know, I do a lot of advisory work with uh, vendors in this space, many of which we've featured on this podcast. Uh, and one of the number one things I say to them when they're talking about uh, moving from North America and getting a foothold in Europe is putting feet on the ground and feet on the ground that people can trust like yourself. So I think that's really smart. And secondly, you know, you're a business that has absolutely blossomed uh, and grown, thrived during this global pandemic. So I think what ThreatLocker are doing with, you know, the hiring, uh, you know, and not saying, hey, you've got to come to our office is just indicative and, you know, of what the rest of the world needs to wake up to in this space. Because we cannot, you cannot hire the best people in the world and then say our office is here. You've got to take it as it comes nowadays, haven't you? Totally, totally, totally. And um, we've been very lucky with that. And uh, we are constantly hiring, we're constantly growing still. It's something that we are we are pushing towards and the growth isn't necessarily stopping. Uh, our goal is we want to be able to help MSPs and um, to do that, we need to grow. So that's, that's something we are definitely focusing on. Yeah. So let's talk about the technology a little bit. But before we jump into some of the specifics of ThreatLocker, I think when it comes to MSPs, endpoint security stack, we've seen loads of new tools emerge in recent years, yet most MSPs that I know still look to antivirus as their main method of security. It's understandable, but is that something that concerns you? Um, yes, 
I, I'm not going to sit here and say that AD is terrible and that it's not going to be the way to be able to solve everything, and you know, it's, uh, or that that it that it is um, a terrible solution and no one should ever use it. I I still stand by that AV is still useful to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, here at Threatlock, we try to break it down into a, a couple of key components. Now, where we see AV tools is more on a detection piece. They're telling you that there is already a problem that exists, and the issue there is. I don't care if the problem exists. I don't want the problem to have happened in the first place. Mm. You know, the horse is already bolted from the stable. We need to we need to get ahead of that. And that's where we tend to see these AV tools, whereas we sit more on a control space. We're stopping that problem from happening before that. One thing that I, I, I constantly get asked by MSPs is, should I be getting rid of AV if I use threat locker? Um, and I'm, I'm very upfront and honest. I, I say no. Um, number one, I, I, I believe it is good to have a varied stack. But what you can do is kind of look at the solutions that you've got. Maybe you don't need that that best and brightest AV tool. Maybe you can use Threat Lock on Windows Defender, for example. I mean, Windows Defender's come on leaps and bounds over the last few years yeah. uh, to where it is actually a very good tool now. So, yeah, I, I don't think AVs are necessarily bad, but I don't think that they are the be-all and end-all that they necessarily were in the past. And that's why we're looking more towards now uh, zero-trust solutions out there in the future. Yeah. Well, let's talk about zero trust. We hear it's one of those buzzwords, isn't it? We hear so much talk about zero trust now. What does zero trust mean to you, Ben? Yeah, sure. So zero trust is, in its simplest form, um, providing users, applications, et cetera, across your network with um, least privilege, least access, um, because that way they can provide the least amount of damage to your systems. Yeah. Uh, so that is an extension taking away local admin rights for users. It's locking down your applications. And this is why we say that we are a zero trust endpoint security company, because the solutions that we implement are truly based around that zero trust um, stack or the zero trust implementation. Yeah, makes sense. So we talked about antivirus. You know, this is not a replacement for antivirus, but it works in addition to it. Let's talk about some of the technologies that you've already mentioned there. So application whitelisting. Uh, I think uh, myself and most of uh, people who listen to this show will be familiar to a degree with application whitelisting. But can you give us a specific example of where application whitelisting would save an MSP's client from harm? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the number one Way of and and I like what you said there, where you'll be familiar with it. Most people have heard of application whitelisting. It is yeah. uh, something that's been around for a while. The problem is it has these kind of negative connotations with it because historically it's always been a pain to go ahead and set up. Now we do that a little bit differently in in how we go ahead and actually configure it, make it like nice and easy to be able to deploy. But um, in in terms of how it can help MSPs, uh, the the key that I always go to is. A scenario MSPs have always heard of ransom. Um, it is the number one threat that we're seeing out there in the wild. Ransomware attacks are doubling year on year on year. Um, they're not just just going after large scale businesses; they're going after small businesses. That said, uh, last Friday, I believe it was, uh, the company who makes hula hoops was hit with ransomware. Uh, so interesting, interesting piece there. I believe it was last Friday. I, I would need to double check that. So ransomware is probably the key piece there. And the reason I mention this is because application whitelisting in itself is essentially saying, hey, um, only these applications are allowed to run. These are on my whitelist. Everything else, we're going to follow a default tonight. It is blocked. Well, at the end of the day, ransomware is an executable. And we're going to look at that executable. We're going to calculate the hash and say, is this on that whitelist? If it's not on that whitelist, it cannot run. So that's, that's essentially, in a nutshell, how we can go ahead and stop things like ransomware 
from spreading across and decimating your network. Makes absolute sense. Can I ask a newbie question here? And I might be echoing something that, you know, other people listening who are familiar with application whitelist, but never really looked at how you deploy it. Mm -hmm. So I can understand, you know, blocking unknown applications, but what about the wealth of applications that are already on a client's network? So you've got line of business applications, which, you know, you need to identify, but then you don't want to get into a situation perhaps where like Windows Notepad is being blocked. So newbie question, how do you set that baseline or how do you balance against usability versus security? Great, great question. So we actually do a little bit differently than some other vendors out there do who follow application whitelisting. Historically, um, and not all vendors, but a lot of vendors out there, when you want to set up application whitelisting, you have to calculate the hash of each of these files and you then have to go ahead and um, whitelist each of those individual files for the applications. And that can take a serious amount of time. That could be three to six months that you could be going through and trying to catalog files and say that, yes, this is allowed to run everything else is going to be denied. We do it a bit differently. Essentially, when you install our agent onto your machine, um, it goes into a learning mode. And we essentially catalog what exists on your machine at that moment in time. So that's going to be things like Notepad, uh, Notepad++ as well, Google Chrome, Spotify, WhatsApp, um, Excel, Microsoft Office. All of the applications that you have got installed at that time, we're going to put through into that whitelist. And this is how we do it a little bit differently there. And that's why I mentioned earlier, we're saving time um, because you don't have to go through and do that manually. Yeah. Well, on the subject of time, any MSPs thinking, yeah, I like the benefits this brings, but I haven't got the time to deploy this tool. What does a typical deployment look like? Because unlike an internal IT department where the tool gets deployed once and that's it, MSPs as well, you know, being a former MSP, you know, we're multi-tenanted. We've got hundreds, if not thousands of endpoints and constantly changing requirements. So what does a deployment look like for a typical MSP? Yeah. Awesome. So um, when it comes out to an MSP standpoint, we make it really, really simple. You can deploy out using your RMM tool of choice. We integrate in with a ton of them. Failing that, deploy using GPO. We have scripts to deploy using PowerShell. We will help you deploy is probably the easiest way to describe that to start off with. Once you've gone ahead and deployed, um, we actually look at the sites that are in your RMM and we create them as sub-organizations inside of your threat locker portal. So what we're really trying to do here is make it as easy as possible for MSPs to be able to jump from account to account, be able to manage their customers in that, again, that term, single pane of glass. Yeah. Um, once you're in there, then, then comes the question I, I normally get of, okay, but maybe I want to apply certain policies or certain applications across all my customers. And we can also go ahead and do that as well. So we can create a certain group called a global group, and that will apply to every single machine you manage. So you could put in your um, RMM agent, for example, maybe your backup um, software would need to go in there and be approved for, for all of your machines across the board. Maybe you want everyone to be able to use Google Chrome. Well, you can go ahead and put that in that global um, group in there and it will apply to everyone. Our goal with ThreatLocker is making it as easy to manage for MSPs because obviously we know that MSPs, they need their time to spend elsewhere. So we want to try and make a, as much as we can, a set and forget solution. Yeah, makes sense. It, from a uh, perspective, so it's hierarchical, but also there's granular uh, security in there as well. So, uh, what's the typical deployment time for an MSP? So, if I'm a you know an MSP, say I've got sixty odd clients and a few few hundred or few thousand endpoints, what would you say is the time from uh, deployment to actually get getting those clients secure? Sure. So, um, it very much depends on um, following best practice, all that kind of stuff. Now, when when it comes down to deploying it, you will actually be paired up with one of our solutions engineers. 
Um, we don't just kind of throw software at you and say, crap on, have fun, here's 4KB articles, enjoy. Uh, we actually, we, we do try to um, guide people and, and train them and help them as much as possible because we recognize that Zero Trust has still got this kind of scary element to it. So um, what we will actually do is, again, we pay up with an SE, uh, and it generally takes, for this, this trial, for this initial deployment, this testing period, between four and six weeks um, to be able to go through, uh, fully install it, go through the learning process. That generally takes a week or so. And then from there, we can realistically start locking down some machines. I've seen sites of a 1,000 machines locked down in less than a month. Um, so if you are really, really quick, if um, you're working with our team to be able to, to get it set up correctly, um, we can realistically have yeah, thousands of machines locked down every, every single month. And that all comes down to our learning process. Because we've got that learning process, it cuts down on the, the management aspect because we are going to pick up everything that already exists and say, yes, this is allowed. Yeah. Now, you've already mentioned RMM tools, of course, remote monitoring and maintenance tools. But for any MSP, there's already going to be a technology stack in place there. We've mentioned RMM, we mentioned AV. What does integration look like at the moment for ThreatLocker? For instance, is it uh, which RMM tools does it integrate with? Are there any PSA tools, professional services automation tools that you integrate with? Yeah, sure. So we integrate in with ConnectWise, we integrate in with Casea, we integrate in with Data as well, um, both the PSAs and the RMMs for those. Uh, we are currently building a Slack integration. That's a very mm. interesting one right now. Yeah. Um, we integrate with Splunk as well. If you want to pull the data out of our, our unified audit, we do also integrate in there as well. We have AD integrations. We have a ton of integrations. And the great thing about ThreatLocker is um, we are a very nimble company. So if there is an integration that people are like, oh, that, that, that could be really good. We, we, should, we, you know, we should build that integration. We're more than happy to build it. Um, elevation control, uh, one of our, our core products, actually came about from product feedback from users saying, hey, we'd love to see a solution like this. So in terms of integrations, we're constantly building and constantly adapting. So um, if people have any any requests, obviously, we'd love to hear them. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get you to share your contact details a little bit later with people. <laughs> you may be regretting that as you get a flood of yes. integration requests come through there. But uh, yes. as you say, you're very nimble and move uh, quickly. I want to pick up on something you said there. So most MSPs are really familiar with receiving a call from a client saying, I need the administrator password. <laughs> and yeah. you're like, yeah, not so much. We're not going to do that. Elevation control that you mentioned. Is elevation control something that can help with that type of scenario? 100%. Now, nine times out of 10, the reason that someone will be calling to say, hey, I need the admin password is because they want to install an application. Yeah. Or maybe an application needs to update. You know, QuickBooks, for example, needs to go ahead and run an update. Uh, it's, it's going to be some kind of application that requires that local admin privilege to be able to do something. That is specifically what our elevation control was built for. What we're allowing you to do here is take away those local admin credentials, say, no, 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 you're not allowed them anymore because, you know, let's be realistic. Uh, the people who have local admin credentials generally call up more often um, and say, hello, something's broken, uh, because they've more than likely installed SuperShop or 5000 on that machine, and then everything's <laughs> running really slow. Yeah. So what we enable you to do is take away those local admin credentials and allow your user to be able to only run certain applications as an administrator. And that's where this is really key, only certain applications. So we're locking it down um, really tightly. Now, there is there is an inherent issue here. Um, with that, with elevation tools in general, to be honest, because um, there's a certain type of attack called application hopping. Um, essentially, it's where if you have admin credentials on one application, so if you've implemented a, an elevation tool, you have admin credentials on 
Office, for example, or Microsoft Word, you can still technically, even though you're only an admin on one app, go to File, Open, right-click on PowerShell, and then run that as an administrator. Now, you're not technically allowed to do that, but Windows says that this is a feature uh, built into the system that you can go ahead and do that. Obviously, it's a huge gaping bug, and that should not be allowed to happen. So tying that in with our ring fencing of locking applications down and saying, hey, you can run this as an admin, but you're not allowed to call any other applications closes that kind of attack from being able to happen if you're using the threat locker solution. That makes sense. I actually came across exactly that type of scenario you were talking about on a smaller scale. So I'm a productivity geek, and I use tools like AppBlock on Android and Freedom, which is a VPN-type tool on iOS that blocks me from opening, say, Instagram during work hours and stuff like that. And I actually came across something. I had Pocket, which is an application for reading, an RSS-type feed reader. And I was able to go onto Instagram via Pocket because... Yeah, the, the system oh. did not look. So I know it sounds like a really silly example, but it just, you know, if yeah. people want to find a way around it, they can do. So interesting to see that you've already uh, taken that into consideration with things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and this is the thing, we, we always have to plan for users finding finding those ways around. And that's where ring fencing can really kind of protect you there. It's it's locking the application down and saying you can run, but you are limited from accessing X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's why we like to kind of have the threat lock solution in unison rather than individual components. Uh, we like to view it all as one individual um, product or piece. Yeah. Quick question. So I just mentioned iOS, uh, Android. Obviously, we've got Windows. We've got Mac. There's Linux out there. There's all manner of you know uh, different systems that MSPs have to look after. What systems does ThreatLocker uh, work on at the moment, and what do you have planned for the future? So right now, we support Windows Server 2008 R2 and above. Um, so those are pretty much all Windows servers that anyone should be using nowadays, yeah. um, as well as most Windows OSs that are out there now. We do support Windows 11, of course. Um, in terms of Mac, we are building our Mac agent right now, and we're hoping to um, have a live or a beta release in Q1. Um, we actually have Zero Trust World coming up in about uh, 13 days, 12 days around that now um, i think we're going to be hoping hopefully to do a uh, a live demo of our mac agent as well so we've nice. gone through we've got the approval from apple everything's okay from that standpoint we're now just fleshing it out and making sure that it's got all the features that we want to before we release it um, linux is on the roadmap linux is something that we are definitely looking at it's just not something we've started on yet um, but it is something that we are seeing a uh, uh, more and more people asking for um, yep. as time is going on Makes sense. And I totally understand from a small business perspective as well. You've only got so many reasons. People say, hey, Mr. Vendor, you haven't got this, that, and the other. It's like, well, you know, we've got to prioritize what goes on, which is why I can understand Linux is a growing field, but it's perhaps not the the most dominant at the moment. So we'll keep an eye on that one. So Exactly. There's another technology uh, that I've heard mentioned as well, data storage control. So tell us what data storage control is. And what are the cybersecurity implications for MSPs behind this? Yeah, sure. So we look at storage control uh, in essentially the, the way of we, what you need to do is lock down your storage so that it cannot be uh, exfiltrated, leaked, stolen, etc. Mm. Um, the easiest way to describe this is if you have an application that's running on your machine, uh, it has the same access to all of the data that you have as a user, which sounds fine on the on the, the kind of that the, the high level when, when you then start to really delve into it you, you start to then think well do i want chrome to be able to access my public share do i want 
Discord to be able to access X, Y, and Z. You know, do I need these applications that I use for very niche purposes to be able to access my data? And obviously, the answer to that is no. We do not want that happening because on a network, you can have three, 400 different applications that are installed. Well, if any of those applications have a hole that hasn't been patched or can be exploited, that's an easy way for someone to be able to get in and to be able to steal your data, right? So we essentially enable you to be able to uh, lock down network shares. Um, and it's not just network shares. It's, it's local files and folders as well. Um, lock down file paths. That's the easiest way to phrase that. Um, so we enable you to lock down file paths uh, to only certain applications. Now, there's a couple of use cases here. My public share. Lock it down so that only Office can access it, a PDF viewer, VLC media player, and my line of business application. What else needs to access it realistically? Nothing. My backup solution. Maybe I'm using Veeam, for example. Well, Veeam will back up to a, a local share of some kind on a server. Lock that down so that only the Veeam software can access that. Because why do I need any other software accessing my backup location? Right. right. And then we can apply the same when we start thinking about sync folders, OneDrive sync folder. Lock it down so that only Microsoft Office can access it if I wanted to, for example. So it's about locking down your data and applying access only to the applications that realistically need to access it. And the key reason for that, the number one I always give is, again, the, the example I gave earlier, ransomware. When ransomware gets on a network, it likes to scan for any SIFs, NFS, uh, SMB shares. It looks for backup locations, and it will look for sync folders. Because it knows if it can find those locations, it's more likely going to be able to uh, uh, encrypt more data, and you're going to go ahead and pay. Well stop it from being able to access that just by default. Uh, it's, it's a, it seems very simple when we, when we start talking about it now, but it's something that we're not doing enough of right now. And hopefully MSPs will, will kind of look towards that in the future. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the applications of all this different technology here, and there's one big thing that's jumping out to me, and that is it's going to enable MSPs to lower their cost of support like significantly because you're going to reduce the amount of uh, tickets that get raised. You're going to reduce the amount of damage that's done to uh, to clients. You know, this is a technology that I can see. We talked about antivirus earlier. It's a given that every MSP uses antivirus at the client. I can see this being a technology that is a given for MSPs using over the next few years. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the logistics. MSPs listening to this, they're like, okay, you've piqued my interest. I want to take a look. But um, so as a former MSP myself, the first question I'd ask you is, how do you license ThreatLocker? How is it licensed to MSPs and to their clients? So um, it's a pretty simple licensing method. Uh, it's done on a seat count. So basically the devices that you want to protect. Um, so if you have 100 Windows desktops and 50 Windows servers, we'll go ahead and that's 150 seats. Um, and uh, we, we do it in banding. So you can, we have a it's 20 to 100 band and then 101 to 250 band, et cetera. And we will look at your um, customer sites all in. Uh, what everything that you've got, and we can go ahead and uh, chuck things into the band and, and, and then sort it from there. So it's, it's a very simple kind of uh, branding and, and, and pricing structure there. Yeah. Is there any long-term commitments here? So at the time of recording this, we've just spoken to Microsoft and they've released their new customer experience, you know, moving away from monthly and towards the annual uh, commitments there. How's ThreatLocker license in that term? Yeah. So generally we're a, we're a one-year commitment. So um, no, nothing long-term, I would say there. Yeah. And you can sign in for, we have recently released um, a three-year commitment offering if that's something that people are interested in. And we know for certain customers, they like to tie in for, for X amount of time. So we do now have that offering as well. But to be honest, most people tend to just go for a one-year commitment with us. 
Got it. Understood. And you said the licenses are applicable across all client sites. So you don't uh, make uh, an individual year commitment per client. It's licenses across every client site. Yeah. So essentially, you buy a pool of licenses and you can you can apply them out to all of your clients. Um, and then from there, uh, if you need more licenses, more than happy to be able to go ahead and give you more licenses. That's something that's easy to do. Got it. That makes sense. Now, in terms of the type of audience, the type of market that you go for, do you go d- directly to uh, small businesses as well, or is it MSP only? So realistically, we, we try and work only with MSPs. Um, we tend to find that that's where we have our best success in trying to implement solutions correctly. Um, MSPs know small, medium business networks. They understand it. They know best solutions out there, and they know how to work with them. Um, so when it comes down to that kind of um, setup, we do always try to pair people with a um, an MSP as well, um, if that's something that we can we can definitely do. Excellent partner programs. Do you have something specifically put aside for MSPs? Yeah. So um, from a partner standpoint, um, you know, we we have for, from a partner standpoint, it's 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 pretty simple. We have a ton of marketing content that we go ahead and create. Our marketing team is at your disposal, essentially. So we have a load of white papers that we've created for a ton of different verticals. Um, and we are constantly adding more and more and more. Uh, from there, we do have an MDF program, um, as a lot of vendors do. And um, you can also utilize our tools like myself. Uh, I frequently <laughs> do webinars for, for MSPs. Um, I will go out, I will talk with clients. Um, we're more than happy to run end user demos as well. Realistically, anything that we can do to to help an MSP, we are more than happy to be able to do. Wonderful. You just called yourself a tool on air there, Ben. Uh, I did. I'm going to regret that. (laughs) (laughs) I think when your colleagues listen to this, they may rib you on that one, but I totally understand where you're coming from. And it's really good to see, you know, uh, the the vendor like yourself getting on board, helping the MSPs in the sales situation as well. Because so many MSPs that I speak to, you know, they get into this primarily as technicians. And this sales side of things is something that they find on the marketing side of things, something they can find a challenge so that you you are giving, uh, you know, marketing development funds, uh, you know, well thought out marketing uh, schemes there. You're giving them sales help. This is all really to be applauded and something I would love to see more vendors getting on board with. So we've covered a lot to do with ThreatLocker now. I'm interested, Ben, though, you directly, what are the cybersecurity resources that you keep an eye on to help you stay current? Yeah, so um, my number one thing, I, I'm constantly reading news articles. Um, Channel ETE is a, is a big one for me. Yeah, Joe and the team. Um, yeah, things like uh, the Register as well. I'm a big fan of the Register. The Verge from a uh, a bit more of a general tech basis is is, is very interesting as well. Um, and I think, is it the Bleeping Computer? I always forget the yeah. name of that one. That's, a, that's also a good one. So uh, for me... Um, I'm trying to cram as much news in, in in as I can in between traveling to places or or or, or doing events. Um, a lot of that is going to be really handy from Reddit as well. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big user on r slash MSP and Reddit. Uh, I love to hear what our MSPs are using, what solutions, what problems they're having. Um, so I try and get a bit of a varied news uh, or, or varied information. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if anybody's listening to this while they're out for a walk in the car and thinking, there's a load of resources there, I've got to check them out. We will include all of those details of uh, the resources that Ben mentioned in the show notes on the website. So don't worry about that. Now, who influences you, Ben? Are there any individuals you consider mentors? Yes. Uh, I have I have one 
well, there's always the usual. My dad, uh, my dad is a huge mentor for me. He always has been. He's installed a, a strong work work ethic for me. But from an IT standpoint, there's actually my first boss. Um, I'm still very close friends with him. Uh, I try and see him minimum once a month, and uh, he's been a, a huge mentor. Uh, he took a big gamble on me to to getting into IT, and um, I'm in, eternally grateful for that. Um, and he has been absolutely excellent in providing advice, uh, whether it be uh, I'm looking at solutions, doing webinars like this, or, or even um, job advice and things. So he's a, he is a, he's a strong mentor. I, I won't name him in case he gets DDoSed. Uh, because <laughs> I, could, I could only imagine he'll be very upset with that. But um, yeah, there, there was, it's, I was always told when I was younger by my dad, it's kind of, it's not always what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. And um, I, I definitely agree with him there. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Wonderful advice. I've always had coaches and mentors throughout my career and it served me incredibly well, just like yourself. And to this day, I still do. So I love asking that question of people to see um, who's been an influence. Sounds like you've had some really strong uh, sort of mentors in your uh, yeah. background there. Um, so we've talked about quite a lot today across the entire cybersecurity field, but if somebody wanted to do a little bit more investigation on application whitelisting, storage control, are there any resources that you could recommend to them to help them uh, bring up to speed in addition to what you've already given today? Yeah, so um, jump onto the ThreatLocker website. We have a ton of information on there. I believe it's ThreatLocker.com. Um, yeah, we have an absolute ton of information there. We also have a demo link. So if you're interested about hearing more, you're always more than welcome to go ahead and book a demo. Any of our ICs are more than happy to sit and natter and discuss uh, away the uh, the zero trust solution and uh, and those individual pieces. Uh, that's, that's That's not a problem at all. Wonderful. We'll include all those details in the show notes. Ben, this has been really eye-opening for me. You know, I, I sometimes I bring guests on the show here because, and I'll, I'll share a secret here, because I want to learn more about the topic of discussion <laughs> themselves. You know, so from a perspective of that, you have taught us so much already today. So I really, really uh, appreciate it. Wish you all the best for ThreatLocker. If anybody wants to continue the conversation with you, how can they find you online to have a chat? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. Just search for Ben Jenkins. Um, I am on LinkedIn. You'll find me in there. Um, obviously, I can share the link as well so that so that I'll be there as well. Absolutely. So we will include all of the details, all of the resources, including Ben's contact details in the show notes for today. Just go to tublog.co.uk and you will find that. Ben, this has been a pleasure. I think this is going to be a rapidly moving uh, sort of industry, a rapidly moving uh, situation here. So how about you and I get together in a, a few months and catch up again, talk some more about this? Love to. I think that'd be absolutely awesome. Wonderful. I will look forward to seeing you on the next Tub Talk. Hey folks, Richard here. Thanks for listening today. I know you've got a ton of options for who you listen to nowadays, so I really appreciate your support. Do you have any feedback on this episode? Ideas for future guests? Tweet me at Tublog using the hashtag TubTalk. I respond to every tweet and really appreciate your feedback. Hey team, this is Richard again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is MSP Insights. Now, every Tuesday, I share my thoughts on the business of IT with you, the managed service community. Thousands of managed service providers already subscribe to MSP Insights. It's easy to sign up, easy to cancel. MSP Insights is basically a short email from me every Tuesday without fail with advice on growing your IT business, plus cool resources I found, discovered, or started exploring that week. It's kind of like my diary 
diary of cool things and often includes articles or books I've read, tools I've discovered and events I think you'd be interested in, often sent to me by my friends and Tub Talk podcast guests. So if that sounds fun, a short tiny bite of MSP goodness every Tuesday and you'd like to try it out, just go to go.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. That's gogo.tub.co forward slash Tuesday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening.